the real narrative is work in an industry that boosts the economy, make money. Work in an industry that betters society, not so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it sad? (laughs) Sorry, Laya, like that's the tagline we just found it. My name is Alyssa. And my name is Bridget. And you're listening to Money Feels. The podcast that we don't monetize, but will eventually because we're all victims of capitalism. (laughs) Yes, exactly. We um, are going to be talking all about monetization today and how people brand themselves and everything they do in their lives. So before we get into it, Alyssa, how does your money feel today or this week? Oh, this week I feel good. I I kind of talked about this on my stories, but I just spent a lot of money getting permanent Christmas lights installed on my house. Um, oh wow! I didn't see that? That's oh really cool. They are incredible. You're gonna want them now that I'm telling you about them because <laughs> it's changed my life. <laughs> and you can use them for every season, so it's worth it. Um, but I always thought they were like $10,000 to install. Mm-hmm. And then I got a quote and it was way less than I was expecting. So I was like, well, I'm just going to book it immediately, That's amazing. <laughs> which is not like me at all. Um, but I just went for it and I'm so happy and glad that I gave myself permission to spend money on that. I'm having the opposite week. Oh you. no. I'm in like so anxious. And <gasps> the reason for it is just because I'm like, I placed the order for my furniture and uh, some of the other, like I got the quotes for other work. To, like I have to put insulation in my garage. I'm going to eventually finish the basement. I want to like redo the laundry room. And all of these things came in at once while I was on vacation when I wasn't working and earning money. And so I keep like spending these sums of money. Like it's it's really making me feel anxious, even though like mathematically I seem to be able to afford it. Right. Like I don't run out of money, but it feels like I'm going to just because it's so expensive. So I'm having like, I'm having a really hard time and I'm I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing like weird uh, things to avoid it. Like when I get the email, if they're like, here's your quote for like, whatever, I'll just ignore it for like five days. And then they're like, do you want this? And then I'll like ignore that one for another two days. And then I'll reply with like, a really specific random question and then they'll instantly reply and then I'll ignore it for another three days. Like I'm just delaying like the time until I have to pay, even though these are things that I want, but I I just have so much anxiety about like spending the money. Oh, I do that all the time. I think that's normal. Like oh, the okay. <laughs> delaying a cost, like even my contacts, they were like, yeah, it's going to be this. And I'm like, um, I need a couple days to to try out these ones. I haven't bought but them before. But it's so irrational. Like I know. these are things that I planned for. None of the costs are a surprise. Like I knew what it would cost, but I'm just like... And you can afford it. I feel like I can't even... And so I keep doing the numbers again and again and again and checking. And they're all like, no, it's okay. Like just just insulate your garage. Be warm. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I, I can't do that. I think the money will run out. <laughs> but if it's one, if it was one big purchase, would you be more comfortable with it? Because like you put a down payment on a house that probably was much more than what you're going to be spending on all of these things. Yeah. But the problem is I'm spending on all of these things the same year I put down <laughs> the down payment. The year's almost over. You could keep <laughs> sending really specific questions until the end of December. It's fine. <laughs> I'll try. Or maybe I'll monetize myself for another revenue stream. That's what I do every single time. I feel like I'm running out of money. I'm like, Kate, how can I make more? Because (laughs) I don't want to give up this thing. Um, So yeah, let's talk about monetizing. First, I kind of want to talk with you about the world of content creation because that's both where we make a majority of our money is on the internet. and Yeah, me, all my money. So how do you feel about content creation and having like a personal brand? I mean, I like it because it's my livelihood. That's true. (laughs) I have a good uh, life from it. But I know we've talked about this a lot. Like the line is really blurry between work and hobby and enjoyment. And I was thinking about this recently, how I have essentially never enjoyed the internet as a consumer. 
in my adult life. Like I have been a creator the whole time when it was blogs, when we were all on Instagram, now that we're on TikTok. And so I'm just like experiencing a completely different internet than people otherwise. And so, yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting when I realized that I just like everything I do is work. It's very little enjoyment or even when I'm like scrolling through my TikTok feed, I'll watch like a few videos for fun. And then inevitably a finance one comes up that I'll like stitch or respond to, or then I'll film one or it gives me an idea and I'll film a draft and then I'll leave it there forever. And so there's no, it's all work at this point. And I find that like very difficult to deal with. Yeah. I was having kind of the same crisis earlier this year. And like you said, when you're just mindlessly scrolling, like it turns into, oh, that's a good idea. Like I should write this down. And yeah, yeah. Like everything's inspiration or you're like, oh, look what that creator is doing and they're doing so well. And like, what can I do? And I feel an immense amount of pressure because I'm like, how is this person pumping out so much content? And I like cannot keep up. It's never ending. It's it's Nicole Victoria, isn't it? She's like our powerhouse. Everything she does, I'm just like, Nicole, I can't keep up. (laughs) I know. Every third video on my feed is her. And I'm like, dude, chill. (laughs) (laughs) She's so, yeah, she's so good at what she does. But at the same time, like I love it or I wouldn't do it. I think like Mm -hmm. I've always, I always keep telling myself that. Um, This last couple of months, I felt super burnt out on the internet. And so, so like, have I. I think all the creators, creators are like just fully crashing. Yeah. Like we don't ever have a break, even when you're on vacation. Like you just talked about that. You went to a wedding and like, even then you're still creating content when you're away. Cause the line is so blurry. Like I'm, even when I'm create creating content, creating va- vacation content, I'm actually just like sharing my vacation and like the lines are so blurry. Like my family follows my accounts and my friends do. And then some of my followers feel like friends from many, yeah. many years now. And so I want to share like my life with them. But then I'm also pumping it out to people who are just there to consume finance content. And it, yeah, it's like there's no line for me anymore. Oh, and I feel like I'm doing a little bit better lately for like once I'm done posting something, I just stop for the rest of the day and I like actually live my life, which I wasn't doing earlier this year. And then I find it funny when my, because all of my friends and family follow as well, when I see them in real life, they're like, oh, I already know what's going on in your life. Yes. Let's talk about everyone else. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, well, that was five minutes of my day. Can I talk to you about everything else? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's a weird space to be in when you don't put everything online because people still think they know everything about your life. Yes. But then if you do put everything online, you're sacrificing your sanity. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know if there's a line, like a boundary. Yeah. The one thing I do appreciate though, is I think now like being a content creator has become a more legitimate and acceptable career. But then there's also the consequence that a lot of young people are striving for it. Like some people are straight up. They're like, I want to be an influencer. That is like their legitimate career goal. And I'm like, no, don't do it. I know. I talked about that a little bit on Twitter before where it's constant content creation, even if you're not an influencer, like you still feel the pressure to create content and yet you're not earning an income from it. It's not monetized. And get followers, like uh, the number of people, especially on my Twitter that are so obsessed with having a large following and like getting followers and they're like, oh, like I'm this close to 2000. I just need like three more people retweet this. And I'm like, nothing comes of this. Like, like, what, why? But I think it's like that uh, gamification of our whole lives too, where we just, we like to see numbers go up. So we want we want followers and views and money thereafter. It's insatiable. It really is. Um, so I guess let's talk a little bit more about that, like the danger of monetizing too much of your personal life and not knowing how to, not separating like what part of your life is meant to be made for monetizing and then what parts of your life you just need to enjoy. Well, I think you and I are in an easier space to do that because our content is financial. So you can give that information and monetize that information without monetizing yourself. And like presenting a personal side is really more about connecting and being authentic. I think like lifestyle influencers where they're 
whole life is legitimately for consumption. I can't imagine what that feels like where your performance of your home or your look or your family is what generates your income. I think, but I also think that era is ending. Don't you feel like that era of the lifestyle influencer is kind of fading a bit? I saw, I forget her name, but I think you shared her with me. She like predicts trends on TikTok. Coco Moco? Yes. I love her. She was actually speaking about how people are kind of falling out of love with influencers unless they also have a nine to five because they're not relatable anymore. Yes. And so I think that kind of falls in line with why lifestyle content creators are not as popular as they used to be. The ultimate irony of this being that we're like removing a way for people to monetize (laughs) their content. I think what's really interesting, and this just occurred to me now, I'm trying to remember what podcast I heard it on. I think it was Under the Influence with Joe Piazza, and she talked about influencers and how that monetized and how it's predominantly women. And it was such a great way for women to earn an income from from their life, from their free labor, generally, uh-huh. like maintaining a home and raising your children. Influencer marketing actually monetized something that's typically always overlooked. And in that respect, I think it's really good. So I guess I have like extremely complicated yeah, feelings. Yeah, mixed emotions. <laughs> well, it's- like some things are so good and then some things are not good. But I do think we are in a culture of hyper monetization. And we think we think of that now. So I think historically, you never thought about like monetizing your existence. And now we're in an era where you can. And so people are looking for those avenues where you never would have like tried to decorate your house a certain way or dress a certain way or do your makeup a certain way with the desire to either receive free product from brands or actual money. Yeah. Now it's the trend of you don't have to be an influencer. You can be a UGC creator, which is user-generated content. So like you just create content doing the things you've always done, but you do it as a contractor in a way for big brands because they want more casual content that is a reflection of your actual experience, not like the sponsored or advertised content that they pay for. But my issue with that is... Typically, these brands pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for traditional advertising. Mm-hmm. And then they pay quite a lot of money for influencers to do that, depending on their level, like their status. So I'm wondering, like, how much advantage are they taking of these people who are creating content as UGC creators? Uh, I'm sure they're taking tons of advantage. Like, how many times have you and I been ripped off? By a big brand. (laughs) So many times or asked to do things for free. Always asked to do something for free by like multi-billion dollar companies promising us exposure. Yes. Still to my day, my favorite is the company who asked several of us actually I've now found to speak about like empowering women and their money for free. As soon as you said, as soon as you said... That, yeah. Like the first two words, I already knew exactly who you were referring to. And I think that's the one I warned you about because I got this email inviting me to like a one hour meeting and I sat down and talked to them for an hour. And then at the end of the meeting, I asked the question I always ask, which is what's your budget? And they told me like that they didn't have one and were hoping <laughs> I would just do this all for free. And I was furious. I nearly sent them an invoice after the call that said like, here's a bill for my one hour of time time that you just wasted. Cause I was so angry. I was just so angry at the audacity. Yeah. Thankfully (laughs) I was on maternity leave at the time. So I (laughs) didn't reply, (laughs) (laughs) but they did email again this year. And I just kept, I just haven't replied because I'm like, no, you've, you've burned the bridges in this uh, community because we're all quite vocal and open with each other on rates and who's paying and what they're paying. Which is often, I don't know if that's very common in other niche industries for content creation. I think we're one of the most transparent groups. I don't think it's common in very many spaces. And I, I think the reason that Canadian personal finance especially is so transparent is because that is what um, Barry Choi of Money We Have 
started like very early on, like 10 years ago, he was like, all of you are charging too little. Everybody start talking to each other. Let's all set base rates and, and we'll go from there. And I think if he hadn't done that and gone to everyone and said that, and he was full on, he's like, if we work together, it will be better for everyone. And he was right. Like so right. So I think we're more transparent with each other, I think because of him. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that, Barry. Barry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love him so much. He's the best. Okay. So we're, we've shared a lot about like our personal experiences with content creation and monetization. So let's talk about everyone else now. <laughs> we'll gossip <laughs> about all of, all of the listeners. <laughs> um, about why people monetize everything that they do and the pressure to do that. Like, how do we... Because everyone's stressed, right? Like, I everyone's know. Everyone's stressed about their finances. And there is this narrative that if you can earn money doing something that you love or monetize something that you're already doing, like that seems to kill two birds with one stone. It's like, not only will I get to continue to do the thing that I like, but now I'm going to get paid for it. Yes, that's 100% why everyone does it. But I also think I've learned the hard way many, many times that it's not always the best decision. What do you mean? Do you have an example of that? Of course. Like I, (laughs) of course I do. (laughs) Um, One of the things I started monetizing very early on when I became a content creator, which was several years ago now, was blogging. So like freelance writing just went hand in hand with that. People were like, you can make so much money writing content for other brands and other companies. Yeah. I was like, you're right. I should just do this because I'm already writing all of the time. And I started to do freelance writing and you start to pick up clients really easily once you build a network. And especially in finance, because it's really hard to find a good talent that's good with both the math and the writing. Like it's not often that those two skills go together. So yeah, you can get tons of clients once you're in. Yeah. And and so I did. I just kept collecting clients and I have a fear of saying no to money. Like I, I talk about that a lot. I am really, really good at setting boundaries in my personal life. So with people mm-hmm. that make me uncomfortable or aren't respecting me. But when it comes to work and someone offering me money for a job, I'm like, I have to say yes, because what if this is the last time someone offers me a job? No, I, I understand that completely. I feel... I feel s- crazy whenever I turn down money. It took, it took a long time yeah, and I've I still get started. anxious about it. I know I've just started doing it this year and I still say yes sometimes to things that I don't really want to do. It feels so dangerous to say no. It's like, I'm destitute if I turn this down or you're like the universe will punish me and not give me more opportunities. Exactly. So that's what happened with freelance writing. I just kept accepting more responsibility, more hours, more work. And I started to hate writing. And like, that is something I love to do. So I was like, this is not healthy anymore. That's probably what happened to me too. Like I wrote for a long time, like many years. And then I stopped doing freelance writing probably last year. I still do my biweekly column in the globe. And that's the only freelance writing I do. And like, the catch for that was basically like, I'm allowed to write whatever I want and I only have to do it twice a month and and then it's good. But you know what's interesting now is I started sending out my email newsletter again. It goes out like every Thursday and I'm writing that and I love it. And it generates Aww. like no money at all. <laughs> it's just like, here are my thoughts and I, I love it. It's like I've come back to something that I really enjoyed. And I think because it's not monetized, I'm enjoying it so much. But that was the agreement we made with this podcast because no one else will know that. But Bridget and I were like, let's do this for fun. Like let's have fun for once and just like enjoy doing something together. We immediately overplanned our first podcast episode by doing a big (laughs) event. But since then, (laughs) we've kept things really casual and I feel like I'm having fun. (laughs) I'm having fun. And yeah, it's not monetized at all. Like we don't have a season sponsor. We're not putting ads on it. We, we're actually spending money to produce this <laughs> podcast because we have an editor who does an amazing job. So uh, thank you, Drew. We were just <laughs> praising you before we hit record. It's fantastic. <laughs> and yeah, that's another thing. It's really enjoyable to not have it, uh, everything monetized, but I mean, it's possible that it will be in the future because we got to eat girl. We can't <laughs> not monetize things. 
Yeah, I think like there's a lesson I've learned is I really have to determine what is a hobby and what is something that I can monetize. Mm-hmm. And I always talk about this with friends and followers, which is it is extremely important to have hobbies. A lot of people feel that they don't have hobbies or don't know how to make time for their hobbies. And that's kind of where I draw the line on some of my talents. Like I'm great at drawing. Um, I do all of my Instagram illustrations, but mm-hmm. I don't want to monetize them because suddenly I know I know I'll fall out of love with it if I have to do the work. Do you think side hustle culture like ruined everything? I think so, but I I hate saying it because that's how I made my income. Mm-hmm. That's how I grew my net worth so quickly. That's how I was able to I like essentially have tripled my income in 7 years. Yeah. And if I didn't do side hustles then I wouldn't have been able to do that. So again, it's like I have parts of my life that I've turned into side hustles and it's worked out really well because I was able to make the commitment, which is very heavy. But then mm-hmm. I also have other hobbies that I cannot monetize. Like I'm just, I'm not capable of monetizing. Like I, I play soccer. I will never be a professional soccer player. <laughs> and so like, that's an amazing hobby for me because I can't do anything about it. Like I just have to show up and play for fun. You could monetize it though. That's the weird thing. It's there are avenues, like whether it's doing coaching or other Things like I think we live in a time where everything can be monetized. Don't tell me that. Of- <laughs> I'm I'm, uh, I'm obsessed with money, Bridget. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but you're so right. Like it's very true. You can monetize anything you want to. So for you, then you're choosing not to monetize hobbies that you really enjoy as like a way of protecting them. Or what is your criteria for not monetizing? Because my is I simply don't have hobbies. I don't believe that everyone has hobbies. You read that's a hobby. Yeah, I do. You go for coffees and like you love having pastries. That's a hobby. My my hobby is eating and drinking. (laughs) (laughs) That is a hobby for people. Food. food and wine and like good drink like you know like coffee being a coffee mm-hmm. aficionado like those are hobbies for people <laughs> so give yourself more credit okay you're an interesting person <laughs> thank I you think, very much <laughs> i think for me like the reason i don't want to monetize things like soccer and things like drawing is because when i'm doing those things i can't think about anything else. So when I'm at soccer, I have to be focused on the game. When I'm drawing, I have to be focused on drawing. I can't I can't afford to think about other things. Whereas when I'm working on my business, my mind's running a mile a minute and I start to get flustered and overwhelmed because you know how much we have to remember. Like both of us don't have teams of people no. behind our content. Like we occasionally contract people out to do things, but both of us run our platforms completely by ourselves. Mm-hmm. And most creators have an entire group of people behind them. Yeah, depending on the content they create, for sure. Yeah. So I think I have learned that I cannot afford to give myself any more stress. <laughs> and so the the two things that bring me joy, I don't want to blur the lines there. So what is your recommendation for people who are like considering side hustles or are feeling the pressure to monetize something because actually this was the advice that I used to give like on my blog 10 years ago is I'm like the easiest side hustle for you is something that you like to do or a skill or talent that you have and then monetize it and that does seem to like still be true I just watched that Netflix get smarter with money special or whatever and um I think it's Paula from afford anything is on it and she's incredible like one of an OG creator. Yeah, an OG uh, finance creator. And she gives phenomenal advice and she helped one woman like monetize her art. And she, it trained, it changed that woman's life because she was able to be so successful at it. Like she really brought in a decent income from it. And so I'm just wondering like where the line is, what, when you should choose to pursue something and monetize it. And when you're like, no, I'm going to keep this just for me. I think in that case, I I don't know. I didn't watch the episode, but I want to bet that art was something that that person probably wanted to pursue in their life, yeah. but never did oh, because yeah. they were scared or because it was easier to get to a nine to five. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case 
and you are already considering monetizing something, but didn't do it because it's not the traditional way to make money, mm-hmm. then of course, why wouldn't you consider turning that into a side hustle? You've already been dreaming about it for your entire life. Um, right. But those other things that are like you're grasping at straws looking for ways to make income. And at that point, you're probably already really struggling with your mental health because you're not earning enough of a livable wage. Yeah. Then taking away those things that bring you joy by turning them into something that has immense amounts of pressure with it can be, that's, I think, when it becomes risky. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think this just comes back to the importance of caring for your primary job first and really trying to build up your primary income so it can meet your needs. And then then you can really think clearly about what else you want to do. Because I think there is also this narrative in personal finance where they're like, your main job is whatever. And then you can just create a ton of side hustles around it to like make up your income. And it seems like a lot more, it seems easier to just focus on your main job. I actually just saw Haley from Femme Financial Coaching. She was talking about that a lot. Um, in one of her posts. And it was, it blew my mind. For some reason, I had never thought about it this way, but she was like, you, um, if you've been in your job for like three or four years, like you're not in the early stages of your career anymore. Like it's mm-hmm. been a significant amount of time and you're still not earning a wage that suffices the lifestyle you want to live. It's almost that's when you need to reassess your primary income. Like that's Ooh, the that's time of like, bold. am that's I in, <laughs> yeah, am I in a, an industry that's going to pay me what I need? And is it time to look at other options? Because so many of us are like, I can't earn more at my job. So now I have to look at the side hustles. But why don't we ever look at our mainstream of income as something? You're totally right. Are you, my face is just like shocked. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like you're totally right. But that's such a good point. Like once you have those three to five years experience that you need to put on your resume and apply for every job in your field that exists. If you're still applying for jobs that are not meeting your needs and you're being forced to go out and do extra work or monetize like the things that you love, the problem is your primary job. Yeah. Right. That just blew my mind. (laughs) And I only just heard her say that like two days ago and I have not stopped thinking about it. I'm not going to stop thinking about it. That's that's so profound. And so it's so correct. To side hustles. <laughs> is fixing your primary job. Like that should be where you go first before you start taking away the time that you actually have to put towards leisure and rest and the people that you value in your life because that's what you lose when you take on a side hustle. Right. And Yeah, you're right. And the nice thing about like increasing the income at your primary job is you get paid more money without having to usually work more or not really work that much harder. Like sometimes you do, if you transition to more challenging role, then you have to work harder, maybe a few extra hours per week, but it doesn't eat into your time like 10 or 15 or 20 hours a week, like a side hustle might. Yes. And you'll have the energy to apply to learning that role quicker than you would if you were working multiple jobs. Like yes. I say that a lot about, cause I still have a full-time job. Um, any oh energy my God, that you're I, guil- you're the guiltiest person on this podcast. <laughs> I'm the guilty person every episode. <laughs> <laughs> I am perpetuating all of the things you shouldn't do, but we all do them. So I'm relatable still. Okay. <laughs> I always forget that you have your nine to five. <laughs> but I, I think about that too. Like that's, I think where my envy and the pressure that I put on myself comes from with other creators is I cannot produce the content that other people do because my time is so bogged down. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, why am I comparing myself? I can't change anything, but also this is self-inflicted. Like I'm, I'm working two full-time jobs at this point. It's not a side hustle anymore. And that's what a lot of people too, we like disguise our side hustles by calling them just that when in reality, they are another full-time job. It's never just 10 to 15 hours a week. It's another 20, 30, 40 hours a week that you're putting into a position or an income. Yes. I, yeah. I always forget about your full-time job. And <laughs> I know. Again, you're, you're a creator. I look at it. I'm like, she makes so much content more than me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, and she still has another job. On Meanwhile, I'm it. like, I don't do enough. <laughs> What's wrong with me? And you're like, Melissa, 
You're doing fine. (laughs) I think uh, what's interesting that we talked about a little bit is it's not just monetizing your time, but people now feel the need to monetize everything, particularly like assets, like their home. Like now maybe people woke up a little bit this year of the, the risks of that. But last year, all the conversation was you need to do the Smith maneuver on your home, which is for people who haven't heard of that, this, it's a quite complicated, well, it's not complicated, but it's a multi-step technique that involves using the equity in your home to invest in the stock market in order to make your mortgage interest tax deductible. And the process is essentially you pay your mortgage, then you take out a HELOC and you invest that money in the stock market into dividend paying stocks. And when you use borrowed money to invest into dividend stocks, you're allowed to deduct that interest on the loan that you borrowed. So if you do this using a HELOC, what you're essentially doing is ultimately deducting the mortgage interest on your home. And people are just like fully using their houses as piggy banks or ATMs. And it was it was wild, but there was also this narrative whenever I would criticize that. And I was very vocal about criticizing it. I even did, I did a whole article on why HELOCs are bad in the Globe and Mail at like the pe- peak, peak. I think it was like February. I'm like, oh yeah, you're fired up. Doing this. Yeah. I was like very passionately anti-HELOC. And the pushback I got from people was basically from that place of desperation. This is the only way I can build wealth. I need to financialize everything I own. I need to always be looking for ways to earn more. Or they were like, it's stupid if you don't do this because you're just wasting the equity in your home. And I like, I just think we, we were really in a bad place when we felt the need to monetize the home that we live in. Yeah. I think that comes back to, I said it already, but like the insatiable feeling that you need to beat yourself, like whatever you accomplished last year, you need to do better this year. Mm -hmm. Like people are always chasing whatever high they got from some kind of financial win. And if they don't like succeed at that again, then they're looking, they'll do anything. Was that the vibe you got from it? I got the vibe from people were like, I don't have another option. Like this is the only way I'm going to get rich. And I actually, since we were talking about the work stuff before, it was actually a lot of people who felt very stuck in the job that they were at. They either hit like a salary ceiling or there was just not a lot of momentum in their career where they could see themselves earning more. And so they were like, well, I can't get more money out of my career. So I'm going to get money out of my house and investing it. And I also think that's a lot of the driving narrative behind investing entirely is a lot of people are looking at investing as a side hustle right? and it's not. And again, we're just back to my primary job is not giving me the income that I need. So I have to monetize all these externalities around me to make up the difference. It's so strange too, because you own a home, like you have been building wealth. Other Mm -hmm. people can't even do that. So to say like you're desperate to create more wealth after you've done something that many Canadians dream of. Yeah. To me, it's like that is, it doesn't really have to do with anything other than greed. Fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. It's not too harsh. Like, I think people are, I, I want people to earn more money and I want people to have opportunities, but we can't put ourselves in a corner. Yeah. I would say, I don't think it's great anymore. Ever since we took the trauma of money course. And now that I understand financial trauma, I don't, yeah, I see it as like a trauma response to scarcity. I think that desperation and that worry and that anxiety that I'm not making money on every single asset that I have on every hour that I have. I think that's financial trauma less than greed, especially Okay, take it back. I feel bad no, now no. for saying greed. <laughs> no, I didn't. I don't want to make you feel uh, bad about it. I just, I even maybe a lot of greed is a trauma response because it is yeah. that insatiable need to have so much that you're not left wanting anymore. And yeah, I think that's, and I noticed like um, when we were talking before too about monetizing your spending, there's also now this obsession with monetizing your spending. And I'm guilty of this. And people ask me all the time, like, what's the best cashback credit card? Mm -hmm. What's the best like travel rewards points credit card? And 
I still internalize this a lot because I just placed like my Sephora VIB Rouge order and I ordered an expensive item. I ordered the Dyson hairdryer, which I'm really excited about. That's the only way I was going to get it with 20% <laughs> off. And I ordered it for the VIB Rouge sale. And after I placed the order, I realized I had forgotten to click through on Rakuten. And oh, no. Anyone that yeah. Yeah. And so if anyone that isn't using Rakuten, it's actually awesome because you just go to the website, you type in like the, where you want to shop and then you click it. So I'd put Sephora, you click Sephora and you get like two to 5% cash back. I've even seen Sephora as high as like 8% before. And you just get that cash back and then they pay you out quarterly for it. There's no other steps. You literally like click through and they give you free money. And so I had bought this like really expensive item and forgot to click through. And I was like, honestly, like, should I cancel the order and do it again? Like to chase my $12. <laughs> Which you would, you would be all over me if I told you this story. You'd be like, I know. $12. And so I didn't, I didn't do it. I was just like, you know what? I'm like, not every click I make on the web has to be monetized, <laughs> but it did go through my mind. Like, and I did beat myself up. I'm like, why did you have to forget on the like four hundred dollars right. purchase and not on the like twenty dollar lipstick? Because even there's also that also um, changes my behavior with online spending. Like, I stopped going to a lot of stores first because of the pandemic, but then I'm like, why would I physically go to the store if I could click through online and get the cash back? Like I don't get cash back for going to the store. And so even now, a lot of my behaviors are constructed around cash back rewards points. And now that I'm saying that out loud in this podcast, I feel really gross about it because I didn't quite realize the extent that it was ingrained in my consumer behavior to monetize my spending. I think I'm going to make you feel better. So I, I told you at the beginning of the episode that I spent all that money on my lights. And mm-hmm. then in the same week, I called or I submitted a complaint to the Halloween candy company because I had a bunch of bags in my box that were empty. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't going to do it, but a bunch of followers were like, oh, just email them and they'll give you a coupon. And I was like, you're right. Like, I'm mad because I spent all this money and on Halloween candy. And I need my coupon for yeah, my Yeah, and I want my coupon. <laughs> and I did that. It took like five minutes and I got a $5 coupon. Okay. So I made a dollar a minute worth it. (laughs) I did that. I got the coupon the same week that I got the lights installed. And I was like, you know, I'm still working on it. I spent money on something I love, yet I was still extremely frugal about this Halloween candy. (laughs) And I was like, I'm trying to learn how to find a balance. And someone was like, no, that is the balance. Like, that's it. You are still working for the money that you, you need but you're spending money on the things that you love. And I think that's what you're doing when you're monetizing. Like it's sometimes you need to just do whatever you can to make it feel okay to buy something that you want. Right. And I think, I don't know if that's necessarily like over monetizing your life. It's just like, that's more of like a hack of like how to save money on items that you are going to buy anyways. That's a kind way to put it. You always (laughs) have the positive spins on. Except when I'm calling people greedy. (laughs) Yeah, because I was thinking about that too. I was thinking about my Sephora order while I was like on my walk today and discussing it. And like, essentially the rationale that I came down to is like, first I was like, you don't have to monetize every second of your life. And sometimes I just have to let small amounts go. I think it was from Ramit and his podcast, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, that he kept pointing that out to people is if something's under a certain threshold, you don't need to worry about it. And so my Sephora order where like, yeah, maybe I missed out on $12 cash back or whatever. It's like, how much does $12 really make a difference in the grand scheme of my life? And the other thing that as has actually really helped me stop monetizing every breath I take is when I read Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. Mm-hmm. We're really giving like the shout outs to finance oh people on this episode. Well, like, you need we... it. We need to share where we get our wisdom. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a long list in the shout outs of like, here's all the creators <laughs> we mentioned. 
Uh, but Bill Perkins in that book, Die With Zero, which followers have already requested, we do a whole episode on that. So we'll oh my do gosh, that at, please. We'll do that at some point. But in the book, he essentially points out like your goal with your investments should be to spend them to ultimately die with zero. No one knows when they'll die. So you cannot get to zero. Therefore, some money will be left over no matter what you do. And so now in my mind... I'm when I miss out on my twelve dollars from Rakuten, I'm like, well, that was twelve dollars I would have just died with anyway. <laughs> I wasn't gonna use it. So it's okay if I don't receive it now because I was gonna waste it anyway. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. You know what? That's good logic. That's just good old fashioned logic. <laughs> yeah, because I think there is a hyper need to always get a like maybe getting a deal is a little off a different route from monetization, but we do worry about small amounts all the time and that we're like failing or not being responsible for our our money. If we have those tiny little missteps Mm -hmm. and yeah, for me, I just reframed it. I'm like, that was money I was going to die with anyway. So I don't need it. That's fair. I I like that. I wanted to touch on to like the Obviously, we have to relate everything back to capitalism at some point because... That's your jam. Like, would we have a podcast if Alyssa wasn't raging against capitalism? This is my time. This is my safe space where I can complain about it um, and tell people, like, be aware. Everything is capitalism. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of people always, when when I do talk about side hustles or monetizing something that you do... Um, everyone's always like, I don't want to do it, but people keep telling me I should. Like a lot of people unintentionally pressure people into monetizing the way that they live their life. Mm -hmm. Like if someone's really good at baking or if someone loves to decorate their home, they're like, oh, you should totally sell your cookies. You should totally become an interior designer. Everyone says that. You're that actually hurt me because that's what I say to my child whenever she does something oh, really no. well. Like if she bakes cookies, I'm like, maybe you'll be a chef when you grow up. And when she draws a picture, I'm like, you could be an artist. And now I'm like, look at me pushing capitalism. <laughs> You're like, here's internalized capitalism <laughs> whispering in your ear. No, I I think that that's well intentioned. <laughs> but I do think like a lot of us are guilty of we all think that we have to, it's the productivity thing again. Like you feel like if you're wasting, wasting time, I'm putting that in air quotes, Mm -hmm. um, not monetizing your evenings and your weekends that you're not doing enough. And that's the reason you're not financially successful is because you're lazy or you are too relaxed. That is the narrative now though, that of the time that we live in where we believe that your income is tied to your effort, which is really not, or it kind of is for, I would say like from 60,000 to 150,000, I feel like your income is tied to a matrix you could make of hours worked skills, uh, degrees achieved. And then you can kind of, you can kind of predict based on that, those items, how much you make. And then I find like your income just dive like divulges wildly yes. that like it just makes no sense anymore outside of those like some people are really underpaid and work really hard and it's like it doesn't make sense that you're only paid 30 or 40 thousand dollars and someone else is making 80 thousand when you work way harder and then there's also the people earning over 150 thousand dollars and it's like it seems like you're doing nothing and getting paid two hundred thousand dollars for it so i think there's like a very narrow window where there seems to be a a weak correlation of work to income. And then outside of that range, it just doesn't make sense. And yet our narrative is still work hard, get money. <laughs> so if they're yes. like one-to-one tied and they are not. The real narrative is work in an industry that boosts the economy, make money. Work in an industry that betters society. Not so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it sad? <laughs> Like that's the tagline we just found it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. Like if you work in healthcare, if you work in education, you're never going to see those triple figure salaries because unfortunately the like typically the government wouldn't see that as helpful to the economy, even though it is. It's directly. So I don't know when this clicked for me, but it was very early in my career where I was like, what does this economic system 
value above all else? And the answer was money. And all the highest paid jobs in the world are in finance. We tend, there's like this idea that maybe it's like celebrities and professional sports people or high, highly paid doctors and surgeons, but it's not, there's, there's tons of financial analysts and traders and portfolio And you'll never know who they are. And they are making millions upon millions. Actually, if you watch that show on HBO, Billions, I think I watched Mm. like the first two seasons. It was a pretty good, I mean, it was a Hollywood version of it, but it's, it's true. Like in, in a society that values money above all else, then the highest paid careers are the ones pushing that money around. Yes. And the rest of us are scrambling to monetize like shopping. We're like, I'm going grocery shopping already. I'll be a secret shopper and make an extra $15 (laughs) while I'm out. Yeah. um, Do an Instacart run while you do your own grocery shopping. Yeah. So, oh, that's a good question. Like curious if you think those types of side hustles are worth the time that you invest the for gig the payback. Yeah. That's another thing. I think we miss that here. When you think about like Uber, Instacart, Airbnb, everyone was finding other ways to financialize their time. Oh my and- God. There's the one story, sorry. There's the one story of the person who hacked Uber Eats by ha- like picking up their own food delivery. Oh my God. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only way, because actually I think the math shows that those jobs do not pay enough, especially when you factor in your time, the wear and tear on your vehicle and things like that. They pay way below minimum wage. So they give the illusion that you're kind of earning more, but there, it doesn't work. Yeah. I, I feel like that that's basically any side hustle at one point or another, like when you Mm -hmm. first start to create a side hustle and try and do the work, you're always going to earn a small amount of money. Like it's really hard out the gate to earn a significant income that's actually going to impact your bottom line because you have to spend money to start up and then you have to invest so much time. Mm -hmm. And you have you often have to have an asset like a car in order to even do the task in the first place, which yes. is why some side hustles are prohibitive. Like even Airbnb, you have to either have a free room in your home or own a second property yeah. in order to to make that one work out. Yeah, and people do ask that, like, how long into your career or with mixed up money, like how long did it take to earn an income that was actually something to talk about? And it was like the first two to three years, it was was genuinely just a hobby. I made like maybe an extra $1,000 one year if I was lucky. But ultimately, it was building up a brand, creating a network. And unfortunately, that's not something you can always dedicate time to unless you are younger and in your early 20s and have the time and space to do it. Because if I was to start right now, I don't know if it would be possible to get to the point that I'm at without three years <laughs> of building the business. Yeah. I just, I don't know if I could because I am just more tired now in my 30s <laughs> than I was in my 20s. How long did it take you though? Did it take you uh, like more than one year to to earn an income from money after graduation? I think the first year I earned nothing. And then... I gradually earned more and more after that. It, when I was doing my MBA, so I think I must have had money after graduation for like two or three years when I went into my MBA. At that point, I was earning enough to like pay my rent and buy groceries from the site. So I think it was like fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a month, and it wasn't like I wasn't living comfortably. I was a student, but I was I was able. That's to amazing, pay, though. Yeah, like my biggest bills, and then it just gradually went up from there. So yeah, I would say like, we'll say three years before I earned an income I could live off of. I'm really curious. Can you like break down all of the ways you've monetized business in the last like decade? Like, and that might be too long because I'm sure there's many, many ways, but just, I guess for money after graduation, like does everyone know about your website? And well, we don't use the website as much anymore. Like the website still exists. It doesn't really generate um, revenue anymore though. Cause I took the ads off. Originally it used to generate a ton of revenue through advertising and affiliate 
marketing, which is essentially, I still do those things. It's just coming on different channels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause blogging was ultimately a platform and we've just changed platforms. Like the new platforms now that I'm primarily on is Instagram and TikTok. The method isn't different. Just the medium has changed. Um, I, I earn the bulk of my income from my core sales. I would say that makes up like two thirds of my income, which is not insignificant. And then I do a lot of like private teaching and consulting, which uh, most people don't realize. They're just like, how come Bridget doesn't post as much? And I'm like, she's like <laughs> teaching a class uh, for a private client or something like that. And then I also get paid for like speaking engagements and, and things like that. But I, I guess I do a lot more behind the scenes than on it. It's hard to see. It's hard to see what creators do to earn their income if you aren't intricately aware. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause I think that's funny that people like, I still get comments and people are like, well, what do you do for work? And I'm like this, like <laughs> this is my job. And there's a little bit of a disbelief that it can generate enough income to uh, live off of and live, especially like live the lifestyle I do. But I think if you're I don't know. You figure out a lot of bit. Like at the end of the day, it's just running a business. And if you mm-hmm. figure that out, it, you can do it well. But um, it's not easy. It's not straightforward. And it is, yeah, a monetization of your life in a lot of ways. I try not to monetize all aspects of my life, but I do get the demand that's there. Like people will often, uh, they're like, "Can you do a makeup tutorial? Can you give us a tour of your home?" And I just, I won't do those things. I like to. S- share some things of my personal life when I want to share them, but I don't yeah. want to, I don't want to share everything. Yeah. You're the one who taught me that, uh, like basically how to set boundaries as a person on the internet, because it's not easy at all. Yeah. I think the important thing to understand, I realize now we're coming back to the online brand part of this conversation, but I think, um, when you are your product, you have to be very conscious that you are the thing being consumed. And you have to be like, what parts of my life are up for consumption and what parts of my identity are up for consumption and what, what are not like, I have pretty strict boundaries about what I share about romantic relationships, about my child, about my home, even about like my day to day and things like that. It's very limited and it's just, yeah, there's some things you have to keep to yourself, even though they could for sure generate more money. And I think that's the hard thing for me too, uh, which you probably experience as a creator is, you know, what avenues would generate more money for you and to not do them is, is really hard. It's really hard. It is. It is. It's like, again, the desire to earn more when you know you can versus the keeping your sanity which is like, what's more important? Your sanity for sure. And like sanity is really valuable. I think people underestimate how nice it is to maintain your mental health, but I've really had the past, I would say two years where I haven't been focused on income and haven't been focused on just doing the maximum I could do. And it's been really nice, but it's also given me that weird guilt about productivity and not working hard because I'm very deliberately not working at my maximum. And the main reason is because like when I do, I fully burn out and have anxiety attacks and then can't function. But I feel, I feel guilty working less than I have in the past. Uh, and I feel exceptionally guilty knowing I could have more money if I worked harder. <laughs> yeah. Actually, my boss just told me the analogy that kind of put things into perspective for me, which is like, if you are like you cannot possibly operate at a hundred percent of your time or your capacity. And it's kind of like, if you think about traffic, if it works at 80%, there's still congestion and it's still really heavy traffic and hard to get where you want to go. So mm-hmm. imagine if it was at a hundred percent capacity, like <laughs> you just wouldn't be able to accomplish the things that you're supposed to accomplish within the parameters you've set because there's just no room. Yeah. And so I've tried to dial back what I'm doing to an 80% because trying to function at 100% all of the time means that you're leaving other parts of your life at 50, 40% because you have basically run out of time. 
Well, that's just it. You have to take your energy from elsewhere. And I think this is interesting because I think we're seeing this pushback against that culture of like hustling and hyper productivity now, because I run into it um, with the entrepreneurs of startups. I'm like looking at investing in or starting to invest in. And there used to be a culture of like, I work 80 to hundred hours a week. And now like when, in, whenever a CEO says that to me, I'm like, okay, that's a so red that flag. Means- a huge red flag. It's like, okay, then you're productive like 30 hours a week. Whereas if you actually worked 40 to 50 hours a week, you'd be productive 40 to 50 hours a week. But because they go overboard, like it's just so mentally taxing, they actually become uh, less productive. And then there's the worry that they'll burn out in the future. And I'm not going to put my money into a company. They're going to tank because they ran too hard at the beginning. Yeah. And a lot of us too are like, when we burn out, because it's inevitable for many people these days, like it's just super hard to function in this economy when you are forced to work like way more than you can, when you're running both ends of the candle, like trying to keep your family afloat or whatever the case may be, burnout is inevitable. And a lot of us think like, oh, but I'm going on vacation next month. So that will fix everything. Or it's almost Christmas. Like if I just get to Christmas, things will be better. But burnout isn't something that you can resolve within a week or within two months. Like for a lot of people to actually retract from exhaustion and burnout, you'd need to take like multiple months to a year off. And the kind cost of is so high. There's nothing more oh my expensive gosh. than burning yourself out. Like the therapy that you'll need and the time you away from work, you'll like need to recover. It's way better to just work less. I agree. <laughs> so to kind of wrap this episode up, I want to leave everyone with the reminder that before you remove the parts of your life that bring you joy by trying to monetize them, you need to first look at your primary income and see if there is something that needs to change or that you can change to actually give yourself a chance at earning an income without burning yourself out. That's so that still blows my mind from this episode. <laughs> That's like the most important takeaway. I love that this turned into like an anti-side hustle culture. Well, episode. I think that that's what it needs to be. Like I think that we put way too much pressure on ourselves to perform to a standard that isn't possible. Yeah. And that pressure is constant from all sides, especially because of the platforms that we're using and engaging with each other on now. Yes. And there's always a million entrepreneurs that are selling you that dream of, you know, you can do it. You just have to start this extra job and (laughs) be tired for a few months. And then then you can leave your job and have even more stress and pressure. I mean, nothing about that is inaccurate, but I don't want you to not sell entrepreneurship because it has a lot of perks once you get through that, that part of it. It's true. It's true. I still consider myself an entrepreneur, but I have a full-time job. So I'm the scared entrepreneur. That's what I find so funny about this episode is you're the guilty one. (laughs) (laughs) I still find that so funny that you're exactly the person where you're like, you should not be doing this. (laughs) You know what though? This was like a breakthrough week for me as far as capacity and hearing that like hearing the primary income thing. And like you have been talking a lot recently about how during economic hardship or like when the economy is not doing well, you can only control um, how much you spend and Mm -hmm. your income. And like, I just keep going back to that. Like if you're already doing everything you can with your budget, then you have to look at earning. Yeah. And I, ironically, as we enter a recession, we're in a very strong job market. So don't let anyone tell you that you can't make money at your primary job because you can't. It's a very strong job market. They were expected to only what create 10,000 jobs last month and it was (laughs) 100,000. So hopefully that brings some optimism into your mood today. (laughs) The job market is booming. Stop side hustling your life and focus on your primary income so you don't burn out as Alyssa is precariously on on the edge of at all times. <laughs> Constantly. I am living, I am walking burnout. That's what I should be for Halloween next year. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be over by then. Are you going to make any changes to like your the way you manage things? Are you going to pull back on either your full-time job or your side 
hustle now that you've kind of had some of these revelations? I've been trying. Like I said, I've been trying okay. to move from 100% to 80% and seeing what that looks like. Um, so yeah, it's a work in progress thing. Like if you're already in it, it's really hard to dial back because how can you give up an income that yeah, you're earning? that you're accustomed to, yeah. Yeah. So if you're there, I'm with you. If you're not, don't join us. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a like- it's not a you can't sit with us it's that you don't want to sit with us <laughs> <laughs> the table is on fire <laughs> I-, I think that's a beautiful place to end <laughs> as always <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of Money Feels. You can subscribe to our podcast anywhere you listen and be on the lookout for another episode next week. If you like the show, drop a review about your favorite episode and what you love. Follow us on Instagram at Mixed Up Money for Alyssa, at Bridgie Casey for me, Bridget Casey, and at Money Feels Podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>